Hi, and welcome to Super Women, where we talk to amazing women shaping culture, changing the world, and lifting each other up along the way. I'm your host, Rebecca Minkoff, and today I am so excited to talk with Christine Barbaric. She's the global editor-in-chief and co-founder of Refinery29, a website that discovers and celebrates personal style. Before founding Refinery29, Christine held positions at the fashion website The Daily, Gourmet Magazine, and The New Yorker. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that we did record this episode in my office and it was a little bit crazy that day, but I hope you enjoy our chat. Here's Christine Barbaric on Superwomen. So you've been around for 13 years. Refinery29, I've been around for longer than 13 yes. years. So yes, I, I proceed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> How have you evolved the business over time and continued to thrive when you see so many empires falling? I think that the... The whole industry is is in a state of transformation right now. It has been for a long time. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved in digital media, you know, almost 14 years ago. Um, I met Philip and Justin in 2014, and Pierre and I had worked together at City Magazine, where I had been previously. And... Um, there are a lot of indications and a lot of clues in the industry that things were things were changing and the future was really going to be very different in terms of how how people talk to each other, how they shared information, you know, how brands connected with consumers, how entertainment was was sourced and and sort of kind of projected out into the world and I just was really interested and curious and I was also really scared. I remember feeling like the publishing industry was already felt finite to me. It already felt like there was a limit to the opportunities that you could really explore in that space and I just felt really hungry for something new and I think that 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 kind of intrepid spirit is really something that myself, um, Pierre, Philip, and Justin all really share and I think it was incredibly courageous of us when we all got together in 2004 to really talk about what the what refinery 29 could be it was just a huge risk and i think that i've always been attracted to things that feel particularly risky um if i can really match them with a strong gut instinct that i have a connection to this particular opportunity you can feel it you can really kind of feel that this is a direction that you really want to move in and pursue. So I think it's that attitude that we had in the very beginning that has really helped to buoy us through a lot of these twists and turns that the industry is experiencing right now and with all the mergers and you know acquisitions and um, things being sold off and folded. I think that this is something that we really saw coming, but it's also really exciting because I think that what it does is it presents all these opportunities for new makers and creators to to reach an audience and to make things that maybe haven't been made before, which is obviously why we're in the business of creating content and making really relevant, radically relevant entertainment for a predominantly millennial audience. So it's exciting to us, but I think that the I think for us the success has really been um, stabilizing the core while constantly sort of like forging out ahead to see what feels like the right next move and also just bringing on great people I mean obviously it's not about the four of us anymore I mean we do our best to to inform and guide and 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 collaborate but you know so many incredibly talented people have 
have really contributed to the success of of our company and our the sort of universe that Refinery29 has created, and I'm exceedingly grateful to them. Yeah, I liken it to pedaling a bicycle the old way as you're putting your tentacles out in the new way, right? And then adopting those things that work, you know? Not the old way, but you got to keep business going. There's a, then- some, there's a temptation sometimes, especially in this climate. There's a sense of urgency all the time about, you know, being um, at the forefront of something new and doing it better than anybody, right. doing it better than all your all of your competitors. And I think that, that can be extremely alluring, but it can be very distracting. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to continue to nurture and establish something that's really important and enduring. I mean, something that we've created is enduring and it's working and um, and it's our job to constantly examine it. And we do this through data. I mean, obviously we know our audience, I believe, better than, than any of our, you know, any of the peop- other people in our space because we just dedicate so much time and resources to doing research and studies and, and just finding out, like, who they are, what they care about, you know, what they're interested in, what their fears are. And I think that really helps to guide us in, um, in making good business decisions. Yeah. So as far as the business side, for a long time, I wanted to be in my blissful ignorance of just being creative. And then when I finally got to know and learn the business, I was like, why didn't I learn this before? Do you really think that's true though? Yeah, I do. I think that, I think that that blissful ignorance, I think that that's at least for me, it's about fear. It's about fear that you don't know the language. You can't really sort of, you can't kind of hold up your end of a conversation with someone that maybe went to business school. And I think that once I realized it was just fear and that I did already know so much and had, when you really think about the body of knowledge that someone like you has. I don't think I had it when I was 24, 25, 26. Not the way that I have it now. Yeah. Like I could not have held a conversation with a business or investor type the way that I can now. And I, not regretful obviously, but wish I had learned it, you know, sooner. You were learning other things then. I was. I was learning lots of things. Yeah. Do you feel like you approached Refinery or your creativity? You already had that business sense or for you, you had to... I'm a very driven person. I'm a hustler. There's no question. (laughs) And I understand now, you know, obviously being responsible for the welfare of a lot of people that touch our company, that you have to understand and have an appreciation for the business piece. You do because of the, you know, the ethics of, of content editorial and not compromising or contradicting that. I have to be careful about, you know, where my um, priorities lie, but it's always, I think to me, I don't necessarily look at it from a monetary standpoint. I look at it from a success standpoint, from a relevance standpoint, from a value, like how much value does our, does our brand um, deliver to the various people, you know, and organizations that it touches. So to me, I'm constantly thinking about what is going to sort of um, what's going to deliver the most value from a small story, you know, to an enormous sort of multi-pronged program. And I think you have to think that way. And I think it's also a particularly important challenge and skill to understand how to teach the appreciation of that to the people that you work with. It's, I think that we like to think being in the content business, that there is a very distinct line dividing church and state art and commerce. Mm -hmm. And 
they work so closely together. They depend on each other in a lot of ways. And you have to understand that. You have to find ways of understanding the nuance and making sure that certainly that commerce doesn't impede contents and art's ability to tell true stories and to, you know, be its authentic self. But I think that it's really been a very, um, a really positive challenge and also just doing a lot of listening, especially when we have new executives come in like Sarah Personette, who came in from Facebook. She's our COO and Part of my, you know, wanting to spend more time with her is just to learn from her because she has this whole body of knowledge, you know, coming from a completely different part of our industry. You know, obviously we work closely with Facebook, but, you know, the kind of work that she did there, I think her perspective is just so important and valuable. And I love to see how that actually enhances what we do. So whenever somebody comes to the table with a new set of skills or a background that's different from mine or ours. Amy Emmerich's a great example. She started out, you know, launching all of our video content when we really had to ramp that up, you know, three years ago. And now she's our chief content officer. And I knew, you know, having, and I'm sure you feel this way too. I think that when it's lonely sometimes, you know, running a company and being there first and, you know, not really feeling like you have um, this robust kind of um, network of mentors to to lean on and to ask questions and to feel vulnerable with. And also even just in your midst in the office, just feeling like you can ask a question or that you're just constantly learning. Sometimes you do feel like you hit a wall. Yeah. And um, Amy kind of, there was no, there were no walls after she arrived. And, um, and I just, I feel like she has invigorated, you know, this desire I have to make a big difference in this industry because she's shown me how much potential I even have, not just the people that, you know, we work directly with and indirectly with, but she's an enormous, like, asset and such a a creative force. And she's really, she's made a huge um, contribution to our brand. Yeah. I always, I've been telling the youth that, um, (laughs) those young people out there that mentors are not the the person you can't ever get to. They're certain next to you. They're below you. They're, yeah. you know what I mean? They can and be peers. Exactly. Yeah. And like, I learned so much more from my peers or even women, you know, we just brought in a, an, an executive team consisting of three women. And it's like, I was like, throw out everything I know and relearn. Yeah. And that's been great. Cause it's exciting to learn again. You know, it is, it really keeps you relevant and it keeps you energized. And I think that, you know, in a, in an industry, in a world where, you know, sort of youth and beauty are, are prioritized over, over everything else, it seems, it's really important to me to set an example about, you know, becoming even more relevant as you, as you grow and age in the industry. You know, I think it's, it's, out, it's just as much our responsibility to make sure that we, that we feel like we're continuing to make an impact. Right. So one of the big impacts you have is the 67% project, mm-hmm. which I want our listeners to know about just because I think that you're probably one of the first to open that up and talk about diversity of body type and how important that is today. You know, I hate saying the word diversity. Someone recently pointed out to me that that means that there is a center of normal, you know, that you're looking at diversity around. And I was like, oh man, we got to come up with another word where it's just inclusiveness, inclusiveness, you know, that, well, that's interesting. I haven't heard that yet, but, um, You know, I give a lot of credit to Connie Wang, who's like employee number six, and she's one of our really exceptional reporters and and senior writers now, and um, Kelsey Miller, who 
wrote a beautiful memoir called Big Girl, and she really launched our our plus content, um, for lack of a better word, but really kind of drawing attention to to just different kinds of narratives and conversations around body image and um, and really challenging a lot of the notions in the industry. And they actually came up with the concept for 67%. When we were looking through all of the data, again, it really does inform so much of what we do and seeing that, you know, 67% of women across the United States identified, this is about three years ago, probably even more since the study had come out, that 67% of women across the U.S. identified as plus size, which it was really surprising to all of us. And, um, but that only, um, I think it was between two and 5% of those women reflected in, in media imagery that just seemed really wrong to us. And we also looked at our own numbers. I think at that point we were only tracking at about 8%. So we were doing better than the industry average for sure, but that wasn't good enough. So we, came up with this concept to, I believe at this point, it's been a while now since we launched it, but it was a month long program where, and we created original assets that other people use now. We did a whole partnership with Getty Images and we created beautiful, incredibly, you know, a a tremendous variety of imagery for plus size women, you know, of, of all sizes. And, um, and we made sure that 67% of the imagery across all of our platforms was reflecting plus size women. So it was a real revelation and it definitely created a lot of noise in the industry. And, you know, we're very proud of the fact that it, you know, launched dialogues, you know, throughout the fashion industry and got to talking to people like the founder of um, Universal Standard, who enlightened me and told me that a lot of the reasons why designers um, have difficulty extending sizes is because they lack the the technology and the machinery and like simple things. You know, these are these are sort of very practical issues that you know if we can invest some some time and some resources into solving some of these problems, they can really have an enormous impact on improving you know the the expanse of you know what women have available to them. So. It really, it's an ongoing area of importance for us, you know, in terms of just constantly staying on top of what's going on with that topic and the, and just the all the different sub-conversations that are coming out of it, which are really interesting. Many of us have, you know, sat on panels and, you know, we, we cover a lot of content that, you know, addresses it. But it's really been exciting to see big companies, too, now, you know, confronting it and, and dealing with it. So, yeah. And not only, I mean, Outdoor Voices' new campaign for Swim or even Stork, they reshot, you know, that's for maternity, but they yeah. reshot it on real pregnant women of all sizes. And Aerie not, you know, not doing any retouching. So I think it's really important that women can see that this sort of beauty ideal that has been, you know, we're a little bit older. Shoved down our throats. That's been shoved down <laughs> our throats and sort of there was no alternative. It was like you either looked like this. Right. Or you sucked, you know, or you didn't fit or you weren't you weren't invited and or none none of the, you know, these things, you know, that are available to us are available to you. So I think it's this whole shift in perception about, you know, what is beauty? You know, it's how do people um, recognize that and how do they celebrate it? So it's really exciting. It's really exciting. Thanks. It's a yeah. lot of work to do. I'm. I can only imagine. Yeah. I know. For us, when you know Nordstrom said we will only buy your apparel if you go up to size, I think eighteen. You know, for us to, like you said, figure out how to do that 
was a lot of work. So to, to showcase it I on your on admire your that. Yeah. But I think that being a company that cares about that, because I think it's also, I think the thing that some people miss is that it's not just about the product. It's about preparing the company for the future. A hundred percent. These are sort of steps that seem like they're part of a zeitgeist, but they're not. I mean, I think that they are, they are clues as to where, you know, an industry like the retail industry, the fashion industry is headed. Yeah. And you know, designers and, and, you know, sort of CEOs like you will be prepared or you won't. I think the fashion industry is another, is another space that's in the throes of, of transformation. Yeah. At the end of my keynote, I say, if we don't disrupt ourselves, someone will do it for us Mm -hmm. because I think it's happening faster than, you know, the disruption and the the customer changing is happening so fast that unless you're a nimble company, you won't be around. Yeah, you have to really be vulnerable in those situations and ask yourselves, are we doing the best job that we can when it comes to something like this? Right. And, um, and having a really good, robust network of advisors that you really feel um, specialize in these different areas that are undergoing a lot of change. One thing that we're talking about, which I know you already do, is experiential. Well, we do, we're talking about experiential retail. You were ahead of the game in 29 Rooms with experiential media. So when you did that, probably ahead of any other media company that I can think of, was there any fear or was it just excitement or you just knew that this was a way forward? There was no fear. There really wasn't. Um, I mean, the fear is always the cost. (laughs) How expensive is it going to be? You know, can we, can we, can we handle this? Um, as a company. And it's also always thinking about like, are we overextending people when it comes to the kind of work and time that something like an operation like 29 Rooms requires. But from the very beginning, we've been doing experiences. That's been a huge part of how we connect with community. When we had boutique maps, when Refinery29 just launched in 2005 in Los Angeles and New York, they were very high tech at the time. You know, you could toggle between LA and New York and click on your favorite, you know, independent boutique. And you could shop from those boutiques through Refinery29. So we would host these parties at, um, at different stores like Lyell and Stephen Allen. And, um, yeah, it was really exciting. And Bird, those were just important moments for me, at least, you know, being an entrepreneur and just being, just being accessible to people that loved our brand and loved what we were doing. And Piera is, is particularly passionate about just people. And when we have 29 rooms, she's always out, you know, sort of visiting with people who are waiting online to get in. And, you know, when it was raining, um, you know, she and Philip were running up and down the line in New York last year, you know, giving people candy and just making sure that they were satiated and, and, you know, felt like it was worth it. And there's just, I don't know. I, I I think that it really does have kind of a, this is going to sound really woo-woo-ish, but I think it has a kind of karmic impact too. It's like, you just care about your people. You totally. really do. And I think it's hard sometimes, you know, how challenging it can be, you know, sometimes you have to make tough decisions and it doesn't seem like you care about, you know, your people as much as you really do. But experiences are always that moment where we get to actually sort of feel closer to everybody and, um, and also invite in all of the artists and, and different kinds of collaborators that we admire and that we think have a really important and, and unique message to, to sort of share with the world. So 
And also we did these crazy holiday pop-up shops called um, Tinseltown. Do you remember when we do Tinseltown? It was a long time, yeah. It was really fun. And we did this whole sort of plywood fantasy shopping, um, shopping boutique in, I think it was Greenpoint at the time. And, you know, curating from all different brands that we loved and it was open for two weeks and or two weekends and we did save fashion when i think it was 2008 when the uh during the financial crash Mm -hmm. and fashion brands were really suffering we had all of these fashion brands send us their inventory and we hosted a place at times square and we did we created a whole fashion campaign so i think that i worked the floor I literally worked the floor at Safe Fashion, like sell, like selling clothes. Yeah. Selling Tom Brown clothes. We had Band of Outsiders, Rachel Comey. It was like, it was amazing. Yeah. It was like a super sample sale. But there's something you said about you and Piera, like the owner touching the customer, even though you're a huge global, you know, media company, you know, and I think people are always impressed and it just tightens that connection, you know, and I think, really I know hard. I learned, it's hard, but... I think it's who we are, and um, and Pierre and I are artists and writers, you know, for for lack of a better a better label. At the end of the day, and we love making things, and we love telling stories and connecting with people, and we love that the power that that has to create these important dialogues. And I think that that's something that just we really discipline ourselves to keep alive. Totally. So as part of this podcast, I share an embarrassing moment or my shit show. Oh, okay. Is it a professional one or a personal one? Um, sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's professional. I'm going to share with you a professional one. Oh, okay. You can share. Pick your, pick your Was whatever. Was that the notes? I don't remember seeing that. Here. it um, Something that people would be surprised to know. So you don't have to oh, that embarrass. Oh, anything about a shit show. Well, I, I call it okay. my shit show. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have to share. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the first parties I ever got to go to in Manhattan, it was a fashion event. There was um, a red carpet, and I had never done a red carpet before, so I was like, oh, my God, I'm on the red carpet. And someone was like, please do this interview. And I go in, and they start asking me about being the new creative director at Burberry. And I was like, I don't think this person knows that I'm not Christopher Bailey, but they're rolling, and now I don't know what to say. And so I was like, uh, and it was live, and I was like, I'm not, I don't know why you don't know that I'm not Christopher Bailey, but I'm definitely not. And do I look like Christopher Bailey? <laughs> I, clearly they were uh, out-of-towners who didn't know mm-hmm. what a man named Christopher Bailey looked like. But I just remember trying to switch that interview and being so confused and mumbling my words that I was like, I hope this doesn't run anywhere. Do you have any any things that people would be, <laughs> be That's surprised That's not your about? shit show. It kind That's of is because like I should have just said, let's not roll. Uh, I'm not him. Maybe you should wait for him to show up. Well, yeah, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I can, I can definitely sort of, I can sympathize with your, with your sort of brief humiliation (laughs) during something like that. Thank you. Thank you. I think live television is terrifying. It really, really is. It is. Um, I'm trying to think of a real shit show. I mean, I always think of, you know, sort of seeing typos on the site or, you know, things like that are always horrifying to me. But I mean, personally, Recently, there was a really windy day, like two two weeks ago, and I was walking. I'm doing this incredible furniture collaboration with the inside, um, and I was heading down to the inside to um, review the final fabric and textile swatches, and I was wearing this long pleated dress and pleats. You know, it's a lot of fabric, so it kept catching the wind, yes. and it was... 
it just made me nervous. Even though it was a long dress and I had plenty of coverage, I was just like, all I need is one gust and I'm just going to really be screwed. And so I was holding, I had my, like a little purse in my hand and I was kind of holding my, my dress, like on the sides, like kind of like sort of pinching like this, just the like, um, hunks of fabric. So it was like eliminating sort of excess, you know, sort of kite material and, um, or parachute material. But what I didn't realize is I had this, actually, I didn't have this bag. I had a shoulder bag on. So as I was walking, the side was like riding up higher and higher and higher and higher until one point I'm walking for a good 25 minutes. I'm not even kidding you (laughs) in a very, very public part of New York. It was like Crosby street and just like trying to get down to, so at one point I was walking down Lafayette and finally I feel a, I'm not even kidding you. You can't see me because it's a podcast. I feel a breeze like above my underwear. I felt like a breeze and I was like, is there a hole in my dress? I turn around. My entire left side is completely exposed. And for the world to see. For the world to see. And here's the, here's the the sucky part. Like nobody told me. Was there no sort of like, you know, sympathetic, sympathetic person that was like, honey, your dress is caught underneath your purse. And like the exact thing that I was afraid was going to happen, I made happen. Right. So, but you know what? I was sure that somebody had taken a picture of me that might have recognized me and posted it on social media. But I was like, you know what? These things can happen to anybody. And I think that the attitude, I think I would have had like even five years ago, it would have literally like just devastated me for the day. But I thought it was hilarious. I think it's hilarious. And I just thought I was really looking around at everyone thinking like none of you people could have told me. Right. Thanks Literally, a lot. Like when you I have know. kale on your teeth. Why? I know. No self-tanner. It was just like a lot of like white skin, <laughs> you know, on one side. But maybe anyway. they thought of you were experimenting with a new fashion statement. No, it really <laughs> looked like a, a serious <laughs> error and um, um, dressing snafu. But that happened recently. So I hope it's okay that I shared that. I think that's great. So my last question and something I'm asking, um, obviously my brand platform is about empowering women aside from our product. And so is there any advice that you'd want to leave with our listeners that was helpful to you or helpful to them? I think something that I spoke about in, um, Sophia Maruso's book when she first came out with girl boss and she featured some essays from people and, and, um, I was lucky enough for her to feature mine And one of the things that I really meditated on, and I still think about it, is this is such a competitive industry, really is, especially with social media. It's it's not, doesn't take a lot for you to feel um, like you're falling behind and like you don't have enough good things to talk about. You're not doing enough, especially with so much mission-driven information being um, circulated and, um, and shared. So I think that it can be very easy to, to sort of become very self-involved in, in a time like this. And I think that one of the things I mentioned in that essay was just, it's so important to root for other people and to really kind of think about when, when great sort of, you know, rewards come or acknowledgements or um, interviews or great press, it's like, it's so nice to sort of celebrate other people when it happens to them and, um, and share the wealth. I think that's something that Pierre and I've become really good at because it was difficult when you have four founders, there's a lot of competition for who gets the interview, who's going to do the, who's going to get the spot on this entrepreneur has like one opportunity to do this column, like who's going to do it. And we've really become great 
um, and very loving with one another about like, you're really good at this. I think that this is going to be a great platform for you and helping each other with that. And that's been a real education, but I think that it just feels really good. Even peers, people that I admire and that, you know, I, I see as competition, like Estella Bugby at the cut, you know, and just when she, um, you know, write some of her editor's letter, one recently that she wrote, which I thought was really smart and brave. And I emailed her and I was like, this is amazing. You know, it was something that, you know, I thought to myself, could I ever do that? You know, I think that that's the role that we play in each other's lives is really keeping each other kind of on our toes, but also being kind and supportive. And I didn't have a lot of mentors, a lot of women mentors when I was coming up at, you know, big companies like Condé Nast and I don't, it was funny in one of your questions and that you sent to me, your team did was like, you know, tell us, you know, about some of your mentors, like, you know, throughout your career. And it's just so sad to me that in my early days, like I didn't really have a lot of people other than say Rebecca and Osencio, who was my managing editor at Gourmet magazine. And a lot of them were just very resentful of any new kind of new or young or, or different inspiration kind of coming to the table. So I think it's just a good practice for us to really be supportive and excited and enthusiastic about other people winning. Yeah. Especially other women. I think, you know, I, I feel like I say this a lot and so I hope people don't get bored of me saying it, but there's a glass ceiling issue clearly with women, you know, trying to elevate themselves in male dominated companies. But then there's a whole other side in women dominated companies of, like you said, not being kind, especially I feel like in fashion or in media. Right. And so part of why I even started my super women platform was I was so sick of it. I was like, if these people are not going to be nice to me, then let me widen my circle and talk to people that will be nice to me, you know? And then I think it's refreshing to hear that, you know, it has to take this conversation and being kind and paying it forward and not, it's almost like these young people, or when we were coming up, learned to be terrible to other people by the examples of people above them. So to break that cycle of just be kind. Yeah. Just being kind and supportive and also just really encouraging and enthusiastic, um, really pushing, peers and people that you admire to do things that you wish you could do, right. you know, and hoping that you're going to get that support, you know, when the time is right for you. So I think it's particularly important, especially with, you know, women taking maternity leave and, you know, aging throughout different industries. I think that if we're not allies with one another, I think it's just makes it so much more difficult for everyone. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. You're an ally. <laughs> I wish people could see that move that I just did. Ding. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That was Christine Barberick, the global editor-in-chief and co-founder of Refinery29. You can find her work on refinery29.com, and she's on Instagram, at Christine Barberick. Also, check out her podcast, Unstyled, where she talks with guests about their life stories and the things they love to wear. So, my loyal listeners, I really want to hear from you what you want to know more of, who you want as guests. You can email us at superwomen at rebeccaminkoff.com. That's superwomen at rebeccaminkoff.com. Don't be shy. Tune in next week.